Hi everyone, and welcome to the October 2020 edition of Aeon's Retirement Market Update podcast. I'm your host, Ricky Marsh, and today I'm here celebrating our 21st episode. Being 21 means we're now old enough to do pretty much anything in most places in the world, but one crucial thing we can't do is be president of the USA. As we all know, these days you have to be at least 100 years old for that job. Today we're tackling the thorny topic of redundancies, or more specifically, how pensions can be used to help deal with some of the issues these can throw up for employees and employers alike. Andy Gaskell and Ben Rowe will be popping in for that shortly, but in the meantime, here's this month's pensions news. The DWP has launched a consultation on improving outcomes for members of DC schemes. This follows up from last year's consultation on investment innovation and future consolidation, and it includes draft regulations and statutory guidance designed to improve governance, transparency and the diversification of investment portfolios. This builds on the messages seen in that earlier consultation, and also in the pensions regulators' consultation on the future of trusteeship and governance from last summer. One of the key proposals here is that from October 2021, smaller DC schemes will be required to report on how they deliver value to their members. This will include a holistic assessment of costs and charges, net investment returns and governance and administration. Those who fail to demonstrate value for money would then be expected to either improve or more likely wind up and consolidate into a larger arrangement. The proposed threshold for deciding which schemes are in scope for this is £100 million of assets, so that probably means most DC schemes will be in scope for these requirements, although there would be some exemptions for newer schemes. The consultation also looks at ways to encourage larger schemes to invest in a more diverse range of long-term assets, including less liquid assets like venture capital and green infrastructure. There have been some concern in the industry that the ability to invest in these kind of asset classes has been hampered by the way the current charge cap is measured. So there are proposals to change this to give trustees a bit more flexibility. This consultation runs until the 30th of October. In response to a question from Stephen Timms, who's the chair of the Work and Pensions Committee, the government has confirmed that the normal minimum pension age will rise from 55 to 57 in 2028. In case you're not familiar with the terminology, this is the earliest stage at which members can draw benefits from a registered pension scheme, except for cases of ill health and a few transitional cases. Now, this shouldn't really come as a surprise as it's in line with the timetable first set out in the 2014 budget, but it hasn't really been mentioned that much in the last six years, so it's useful to have a reminder. The government's response also stated that the increase would be legislated for in due course. This month marks two years since the ruling in the first Lloyds Bank GMP equalisation case. And while schemes now have most of the things they need to move forward with equalisation, there are still a few loose ends. One of these is the treatment of members who had previously transferred benefits out to another scheme. This was left as an open question by the 2018 ruling, but it was the subject of a second case heard earlier this year. We were expecting a ruling on that case over the summer, but we now know that the judge delayed this to ask further questions of the parties, which will now be the subject of a further hearing at the end of October. This means the written ruling on this case is now expected towards the end of the year. There's still a wide range of possible outcomes from this case, but we are expecting this to result in additional liabilities for schemes, which will need to be reflected by companies in their accounting disclosures. Things could be particularly tricky for companies with a 31st of December year-end, as if the ruling comes out close to the year-end, it may leave them with very little time to consider both the size of the additional liability and how it should be accounted for. If you're in this position, it may be worth discussing this with your advisors now to reduce the risk of a last-minute panic over the Christmas holiday. It's been a while since we last talked about TPR's plans for a single modular code of practice. Just as a reminder, last year TPR announced that it intended to combine the content of all its current codes of practice into a single shorter code. 
When I discussed this with Susan Hall back before lockdown, we were expecting a consultation on this by the end of March, but clearly that didn't happen. TPR have now issued an updated statement on this to say the formal consultation is now expected either later in 2020 or early in 2021. Although ahead of that, they will be engaging more informally with stakeholders just to get some feedback on the proposed design and content. And finally, just a quick heads up about our investment conference series, which is coming up in November. As with pretty much everything these days, this will be a virtual event and it will be split into three parts with sessions on the current investment environment, the DB funding code and implications for investment strategy on the 9th of November, endgame investing on the 10th of November and governance and DC investment on the 13th of November. Invites should have gone out by the time you hear this, but if you haven't received one and you're interested in attending, you can either contact me or your usual Aon consultant and we'll point you in the right direction. And if you'd like more information on this or any of this month's other news stories, I'll include contact details at the end. The difficult topic of redundancies is likely to be on the minds of a lot of employers over the next few months. Now, this isn't something anyone really wants to be talking about, but given the situation, we thought it was worth looking at how pensions can be used to help manage and support redundancy exercises. To help with this, I'm joined by Andy Gaskell from Aon's member options team and Ben Rowe, who's our head of DC. He enjoyed himself so much on the podcast a few months ago that he's back for a second go. Andy, if I'd start with you, what challenges are you seeing for employers and trustees at the moment? So as the economic consequences of the pandemic continue to bite, many employers are making difficult decisions in relation to the size and shape of their workforce for the future. At the same time, job prospects for those who find themselves unemployed are pretty bleak. Many older employees are finding themselves needing to cover a financial gap that could stretch for 10 or more years until their state pension is payable. Others might simply be looking for increased flexibility, perhaps to help family members financially. So how can DB pensions help to address those kind of challenges? I think member options at the point of retirement have become, have become increasingly popular in recent years, and they're kind of a win-win-win for members, trustees and employers alike. Providing members of DP pension schemes with choices around timing and form of pension benefits, while simultaneously reducing risk, improving benefit security, and reducing the ultimate cost of the pension scheme to the employer. Providing members with access to financial advice to understand their options, particularly where they're facing redundancy and may have choices to make in relation to redundancy monies, can be really, really valuable. The advice can simply cover the existing options available at retirement or include new options specific to the circumstances, for example, bridging pensions. Yeah, you mentioned bridging pensions there. So can you just give us a bit more background on those for anyone who's not familiar with them? There's really nothing new in bridging pensions. I think some schemes have had them for a while. Uh, In some schemes, they're promoted and really well used. And in other schemes, they're kind of barely known about. And they do what they say. So they're reshaping, reshaping a member's standard scheme pension to bridge the gap between their retirement date and their state pension date. Those dates, of course, are rarely aligned. A bridging pension offers a smoother overall pattern of pension payments across retirement and also enables individuals to take a bigger tax-free cash lump sum from their DB pension. Most schemes experience liability saving when a member takes a tax-free cash lump sum, so allowing members to take a larger sum has a positive impact on funding too. In scheme options, so I'm thinking about bridging pensions here but could easily be also talking about pension increase exchange, provide a good halfway house for members who want the flexibility over timing and shape of their benefits but aren't really equipped to be able to take investment risk and sort of manage their own retirement income pattern within a drawdown arrangement. And if we just try and put that into context, can these options be integrated with redundancy programs? 
Yes, yes, they can. I think when a new option has been introduced, there's quite a lot of important design decisions that we need to work through. So early engagement and integra integration with the wider redundancy program are really important. But, but I think integrating bridging pensions with the redundancy program can be really attractive. The option can incentivize take up of voluntary redundancy programs, for example, or soften the blow of compulsory redundancies, as it gives members the flexibility to take immediate retirement at ages where they wouldn't otherwise have been able to do so. Where individuals receive redundancy payments in excess of the 30 grand tax-free limit, they could also be spent buying bridging pensions in a scheme, which actually reduces the liabilities and can reduce employer cash requirements too. Okay, so that's covered some of the options for DB members. Ben, what are we seeing on this in the world of DC? Yeah, from a DC perspective, members already have lots of flexibility. So the, the focus here hasn't really been on introducing new options, but it really has been on that bit about providing the support for people so that they understand what it means for their retirement planning. Some members will have scope to top up pension savings out of any taxable redundancy pay. Um, so that often features in communications that, that employers are sending out. And many are trying to work out what impact redundancy has on their retirement plans. Tax really does come into this a lot, both in terms of making payments into the scheme and also taking their benefits from the scheme. We don't want individuals to be hit by a large unexpected tax charge at a time when they're already going through a difficult period themselves. Alongside this, we've been busy creating and delivering webinars for affected populations. It's a really cost-effective way to provide support and answer some of the common questions which groups of individuals have. At the same time, it's really easy to extend this away from just redundancy and changes to really cover other areas such as financial and mental well-being, and also early or mid or even late career webinars. Again, really cost-effective way to support groups of employees. So finally, many are now thinking about what wider support should be provided to individuals. As for many, individual retirement plans will have changed given everything we've been through over the last few months. Yeah, and that's an important point because making retirement decisions is difficult enough at the best of times, but the current economic uncertainty must make things even more complicated for DC members. How are we seeing schemes respond to that? Yeah, that's right. It's an area which is quite rightly receiving more focus than ever. From an individual perspective, the decisions at retirement are complex, and one bad decision could easily cost the member a significant portion of their retirement income, be that not shopping around for the best annuity or drawdown deal that's out there in the market. Or they could just simply pay more tax than they need to. So we've developed a three-step plan for helping our clients. Step one is really about getting the right support in place for members. So that's guidance and education for those that want to go it alone and are happy doing so, through to independent financial advice for those who want to be told what to do. Secondly, companies and trustees should look at signposting members to a default post-retirement vehicle for drawdown. And finally, schemes need to get the engagement strategy right so that members use the support that's in place for them. Yeah, and Ben, you mentioned IFA support there. That's something we've already seen quite a bit of focus on in the DB market. Do you think we'll start to see that extending into DC at all? Yes, that's right. And, and we're already seeing that extension happening. We, we do know that some members will want to be told what to do and getting the decision wrong can, be, can have a large impact. So we're already working with a number of clients who have appointed an IFA for DC members, but it's really still in the minority compared to the DB world where our latest survey showed around 30% of schemes provide access to an IFA at retirement. We've really not seen the, 
the same pace of development in the DC world. Many trustee boards have in place annuity broking services so members can get the best annuity deal in the market, but many of these have been in place for a long time. And we know nowadays that most members don't purchase an annuity at retirement. Now, in practice, there are really good reasons for the differences between the DB and DC market. And as Andy mentioned earlier, there are often positive funding impacts associated with members transferring, which helps to pay for the cost of improving the retirement process. And also, the DB market is much more mature than the DC market in terms of the number of retirees each year. But regardless of all these reasons, we think that there is a big gap there and that trustees and companies need to do more to support DC members at retirement, which will help to secure better member outcomes. So the, the other topic that I just wanted to touch on before we finish up is pension scams. And these have been getting quite a lot of coverage recently. I guess that there may be a risk that members who are being made redundant are more vulnerable to scammers. Is that something that employers and trustees should be looking out for? Yeah, I think that's right, Ricky. I mean, the pen pension scams have been a concern in the industry for a while, increasingly so at the current time. So scammers thrive where there's uncertainty and vulnerability, particularly around sort of personal finances. And the current climate is a bit of a perfect storm in that respect. To put some context around this, the FCA has found that pension scam victims lose on average around £91,000. So it takes an average save of 22 years to save that amount. That's why there's been such a concerted effort from the industry to raise awareness around scams. But the FCA, pensions regulator, and the Money and Pension Service all encourage savers to stay calm during the crisis, flagging the wider support that's available and telling members to take advice. An example of this, which I think you might have seen, is the recent football theme campaign featuring Clive Tilsley, which has got a really great number of football-related puns in it. But it is serious about an issue which we really need to make it a goal to tackle. Sorry. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you have that one. We, we actually used to have quite a lot of puns on this podcast before I took over. So it might just bring back some fond memories for anyone who's been listening for a long time. Um, and anyway, back on topic. So scams, how can those involved in pension schemes help? The pensions regulator has been quite clear in its guidance that trustees and administrators have got a key role and responsibility. They should be communicating and working together on it. We see there being two big parts to the responsibilities. The first is around educating and supporting members to make informed decisions and to know where to turn to for advice. And then the second is having a robust process in place when members tell administrators that they want to transfer. Thinking about the advice part of that, in my role leading Aon's IFA selection team, I've seen a real shift in the balance over the last year or so from employer-led IFA selection, generally linked to liability management, to trustee-led initiatives where member protection really is the core driver. In terms of the process, in practice, most trustees have to delegate trust to their administrators, but it's important that they understand what is being done on their behalf. At Aon, we're certainly confident in what the administration team are doing with a rigorous end-to-end -end process, and we're happy to share that with clients. Well, that's good to hear. And uh, on a nice positive note, it's probably a good place to wrap things up. So thanks very much to both of you for joining me today. Thanks, Ricky. Yeah, thanks, Ricky. Okay, that's everything for episode 21. So thanks again to my guests, Ben Rowe and Andy Gaskell, and thanks to you for listening. I'm off to relive the harrowing, if distant, memories of my own 21st birthday, but hopefully I'll have recovered from that in time to be back for episode 22 next month. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget you can subscribe to the series through all the usual places, including the Apple Podcasts app and Spotify, so you never miss an episode. 
And if you'd like more information on our retirement solutions or you want to feature in a future podcast, you can contact me on ricky.marsh at aon.com. Otherwise, please visit our website or email talktous at aon.com.